Hello and welcome to today's edition of Enjoying the Bible. I'm Matt Ellis, pastor of the First Baptist Church in Polk City, and today is January the 6th. So, today's Bible reading is Genesis chapter 16 and 17 and Matthew chapter 5. One more time, Genesis 16 and 17 and Matthew chapter 5. Now, as I've mentioned before, uh, you can hit pause, and uh, in fact, I would encourage you to hit pause and read the passages of Scripture first, and then come back, and uh, I'll give a quick summary of these chapters, uh, just and, and then give you some highlights. One other thing, if you want to follow along at your own pace and not rely upon me uh, to give you these passages of Scripture so that you know, you can uh, read the passage of Scripture on your own and then just come to this podcast whenever you're ready. I'm using a uh, reading plan that I got from, and that I'm, that I'm accessing on version. Or if you're on uh, the internet on your computer, it's Bible.com. Um, and it's an Old Testament, New Testament uh, passage, of course. You know, you're following along. But I want you to know that if you are, if you are, um, accessing this podcast on uh, Apple Podcast or Google Podcast or Spotify, then if you go to the show notes, if you scroll down uh, below, then I've actually got a link where if you click on that link uh, to go to YouVersion, it'll let you sign up and then you can have your own reading plan. So it's up to you. I hope you're ready for today. Let's get started. Okay, so when we get to Genesis chapter 16, uh, this, this chapter is about uh, the birth of Ishmael. Uh, the, the time frame of Genesis 16 is probably somewhere in the neighborhood of nine months to maybe ten months, something like that, because it begins with Sarai and Abram working a problem, and then in response to that, you would think reasonably soon that Abram had sexual relations with Hagar, and then, nine months later, we get to the end of the chapter, and Hagar has a son and names him Ishmael. And so that's what chapter 16 is about. Now, there's a couple of things that I want to point out. One is, is that when we look at the events of Genesis 16, we see Abram. Abram uh, as a person who is declared righteous, Genesis 15, 6, he believed the Lord, and the Lord credited him with righteous. But we also see Abram as someone who periodically struggled in his faith like us. He struggled in his faith like us. And he made decisions that were not in faith. And he thought those decisions in the moment were of no big deal and were inconsequential. But they ended up having world-impacting ramifications. One of the things that we observe about his lack of faith is that whenever Abram, in a previous chapter, would finally ended up in the land of promise, um, you know, as he traveled from Ur to Canaan, it says that he traveled and uh, to, to uh, Canaan, and then he migrated south. And he went farther south, further south. He finds up in ends up in the Negev, the southern part, and then there's a famine, and then in as it were, in a moment, he heads to Egypt. Well, we're not told in the narrative that God told Abram to go to Egypt. Why did he go to Egypt? 
I believe it was a lack of faith. He was not trusting the Lord to meet his needs even when he was struggling with a famine. Now, I'm telling you, it's easy to find a lack of faith in Abram. It would be very difficult to see that same lack of faith in us because if we were in a place where there was no water and we would die of dehydration, we would say, well, my goodness, you know, let's go find water and we'll pray as we're going or we'll pray later. We need water. But when we look at Abram, we can see it much more clearly. We see it in sin is easier to see in others than in ourselves. But when we see him, a lack of faith sent him to Egypt away from the, the promised land. And that's where he secured this Egyptian slave named Hagar. Well, then when we get to Genesis 16, we realize that it's another lack of faith that Abram and Sarai were probably sitting in the rocking chairs, you know, rocking back and forth saying, God's promised this to us and we're getting older and, you know, we're already past the age of bearing kids. And so God must be saying we need to use our common sense and kind of work this problem. And so Sarai said, you know what, take that Egyptian servant and have relations with her, Abram, husband. And then the child that you bear to her, that will be, as it were, my child. I'll adopt that child. And maybe that's the way we can work this problem. It was a lack of faith. And I'm telling you that Abram and Sarah, if they knew what would have happened as a result of those decisions that they made, they would have never done it. The child that was born is Ishmael. Right? And so who came from Ishmael? Well, the whole Arab nation. Now, I want you to know this, that before your mind travels too far, I want you to, to join me back sitting around Genesis 1, 26 and 27 on a cold night, and our hands are being warmed with those two verses. Those two verses tell us and inform us that God made every single person in his image after his likeness. That includes Jews, that includes Americans, that includes uh, people from France, that includes anyone in the Arab nations, that includes every single person. And so Ishmael was a person of value because he was created in the image of God, tarnished by sin, but he was created in the image of God. And every single person, including those that subscribe to Islam, are value, they have intrinsic worth because they are created in the image of God. They need the gospel like everybody else does, but they have value. So do not let your mind go to a place where, and I've seen people do this before, where passages like Genesis 16 enable someone to justify their racism and their prejudice toward the Arab nations or even those that subscribe to Islam. There is no basis for that. We believe that Islam is a false religion. We believe that people need Jesus in order to be saved and go to heaven. But we believe that every single person that's walking the face of this earth has value. But when you look at Islam, one of the things that we realize is that Islam does not rever Isaac the child of promise. And you're, you're thinking, wait a second, he's the, the promised child. Isaac is the one that, that God's going to bless the nations of the world through. It's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is so familiar to us. This is so familiar to Jews, but it is not to Muslims. 
Muslims believe that Ishmael was the favored child. They would say that he was the firstborn. In fact, he was 13, 14 years old when Isaac was born. And they would even say that Ishmael was the one that Abram was prepared to sacrifice on Mount Moriah, not Isaac. Because they say that Ishmael was the favored one and Abram wanted to give up and offer up his most precious possession to the Lord. Therefore, he was prepared to offer up Ishmael. And so I want you to know that there's a whole religious system that builds up Ishmael. And Ishmael came about because of a lack of faith on Abram and Sarah's part and they made decisions that they didn't think was going to be that big of a deal and it has played out in huge ways once again we're not justifying prejudice or racism every person every person is a person of value but the principle of genesis 16 this first part is or really the the whole chapter is that we may be tempted in a moment of faithlessness to make decisions that we think are not that big of a deal and it may have such a massive impact that we would never be able to imagine so friend I'm telling you always strive to live in faith don't be content that you're saved by faith that's good but you need to live every moment of the day in faith trusting in the Lord now, one other thing that I want to bring out very quickly, because we're, I'm going to be touching on this quite a bit as we go through the, the Old Testament, is a reference to the angel of the Lord. You see that in Genesis 16, verses 7 through 13. The angel. It's not an angel of the Lord. It's the angel of the Lord. And I want you to realize that the word angel in the Hebrew is malak. Malak. And what that means in Hebrew is literally messenger. It doesn't necessarily mean angel, it means messenger. Now, if you look at this word malak as it's translated angel, and if you see that uh, this is someone who clearly is one of the created beings by God and is one of his angels, is cherub or seraphim, then yes, we're talking about an angel with wings and that sort of thing. But when it says the angel of the Lord, I want you to have your sensors up. I want that to shoot off a big red flare because when it says the angel of the Lord, it literally means the messenger of the Lord. And quite often, especially in the book of Genesis, we're not talking about angels. Listen, we're talking about Jesus. I want you to know that Jesus shows up plenty of times in the book of Genesis as the messenger of the Lord. And if you look at verse 10, the angel, it says, The angel of the Lord, or the messenger of the Lord, said to her, I will greatly multiply your offspring, and they will be too many to count. It says, he says, I will greatly multiply your offspring. And if you look um, at what Sarah, uh, not if you look at what Hagar said after her encounter with this angel of the Lord, this messenger of the Lord, in verse 13 it says, So she named the Lord who spoke to her. Listen, she named the Lord who spoke to her. This is not an angel. This is God. And if you're looking at God with skin on, you're talking about Jesus even in the Old Testament. I'm telling you, we're going to see him plenty of times, even in the book of Genesis.
Okay, so we come to Genesis chapter 17. Now I'm going to trust that you have already read this chapter, and so I just want to bring out a couple of, couple of points. One is we see in Genesis 17, we see Abram and Sarai's name being changed. From now on, it's not going to be Abram, which means the father is exalted. It's going to be Abraham, the father of a multitude. And we actually see that name change happen in verse 5, where God says, Your name will no longer be Abram. Your name will be Abraham, for I will make you the father of many nations. And then if you skip over to verse 15, you realize that the Lord also changes Sarai's name to Sarah. Now, Abram meant father of ex the father is exalted. Abraham means the father of a multitude. So there's a little bit of a difference in meaning. But when you get to Sarai, changing to Sarah, it's really not a change in meaning. It means princess. It's just alternate versions of the same name. And so what is God doing is God saying, hey, I'm bored, let's call you something else? Is that what's going on? No. Let me give you two things that God is doing when he changes a name. And it's not just here. God also changes other names in Scripture. just want you to have the, you know, the red flag go up when you see a name change and realize it's at least these two things. One, it shows God's ownership. It shows God's ownership. You know, I can't rename something that doesn't belong to me, Right? But but if I've got a cat or a dog, if I want to change the name, I've, I've got the freedom to change that because that animal belongs to me, so I can change the name if I want. And so when God changes a name, He is demonstrating that He owns the one whose name He is changing. He is demonstrating in Genesis 17 that, Abram, you belong to me. I'm changing your name. You're now Abraham. Sarai, you belong to me. Your name is changed. It's now Sarah. And so God demonstrates ownership. Also, in changing names, God also gives a new identity, right? God is essentially saying, hey, whatever's behind us is behind us. Whatever's behind you is behind you. Let's move ahead. I'm giving you a new destiny. I'm giving you a new name. And so when God changes a name, whether it be Abram's uh, and Sarai's name, or whether we see uh, Cephas being named Peter, or any number of other situations where this happens, I want you to know that it demonstrates God's ownership over that person. God is simply saying, hey, you belong to me. You are mine. You are my treasured possession. But it's also God saying, you know what, let's forget what's behind you and let's create a new identity. Let's move forward. Now, I also want you to see that in verses 9 through 14, we see um, a, a physical manifestation of the covenant that God had made to Abraham and his descendants, that God was going to bless them and bless the world, the nations of the world through them, and God was going, they were a people for himself, um, and so much other stuff that was within the covenant. Well, the sign of the covenant was circumcision. Now, I'm not going to go into this. I believe that I'm talking to adults here, and so y'all know what we're talking about. Um, but, uh, but the sign was circumcision. And we're told in the text uh, that it was to be done only to the males. This is not female uh, circumcision. Although that has happened in cultures, that is not at 
all um, not only advocated here it's not advocated anywhere in scripture it is male circumcision and, and by the way uh, we also know from medical science that uh, there are even physical benefits to this um, because of the you know infection that can build up in those that are not circumcised so this is something that God did and said that it was to be done on the eighth day to the males and it was simply to be a mark on the body that that person belonged to the Lord and that they were a recipient of the promise of the covenant that God had given. And so this is circumcision. There's so much more that can be said about it. There's so much more to that that can be uh, brought out. But I'm just going to leave it right there. If you all want to bring this up on the Facebook group page, feel free to do so. I may just sit back and watch y'all respond to each other. Okay, so let's look at Matthew chapter 5. Now, one of the things I'm not going to do is I'm not going to go through this verse by verse. I'm just going to hit on some of the things that I think uh, are kind of some highlights that I, I just believe need to get brought out. Okay, so I'm going to assume you've read Matthew 5. Um, and uh, so let, let's just kind of go through some of the highlights. The first thing that I want to point out is what's called the Beatitudes the Beatitudes. And uh, we see this in Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 12. Verses 3 through 12. The first thing that I want to bring out about these Beatitudes is that um, they are there are eight of them, and they are divided into four. The first four have to do with our relationship with the Lord, and the second four have to do with our relationship with our fellow man, with the, the people that we bump into each day. Another thing that I want you to see is that uh, every one of these eight Beatitudes has the word blessed that begins uh, each one. The word blessed in the Greek is the Greek word makarios, and it can mean blessed. It can also equally mean happy. You know, a blessed person is a happy person, right? And so Jesus very easily could have said, happy are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Happy are those who mourn. I want you to know that there's a whole lot more to be said about happiness in Scripture than many Christians give the Bible credit for. The, the Word of God tells us over and over and over, if you obey my commands, if you obey this instruction, it will go well with you. You will be happy. It doesn't mean life will always be easy, but it does mean that you will not have the unhappiness of guilt and bad consequences and discipline and judgment and all sorts of other things. And so we're not surprised when we listen to Jesus tell us how it is that we are to live toward him and toward others that he's saying, you're going to be happy if you do this. <laughs> so let's, let's uh, one other thing I want to bring, a couple of other things, one other thing I want to bring out is that at the end of every one of the eight Beatitudes, it has a line at the end. Uh, the first one, verse 3, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs, verse 4, for they will be comforted, verse 5, for they will inherit the earth. All of these eight have those endings. I just want you to know that uh, really each of those endings are true, all of them are true, of every believer. Of every believer. They are promises that every believer can claim. But let's look at the front part, okay? Blessed are, or happy is, 
the poor in spirit. So what's that talking about, poor in spirit? Well, the word poor literally means destitute. It doesn't mean that they're just on the bottom end of society. It means that they literally have no food, they have no job, they have nothing. They are completely in a state of dependence. And Jesus actually says, happy are those who are destitute in spirit. What's this mean? Jesus says, you want, to, you want to get on the right road to happiness? Then let it begin with you realizing you have nothing within yourself, nothing within yourself that can bring any amount of favor with God. You need to begin with the fact that you are a sinner, that you are broken before God, and that you have nothing to give. Jesus said, start off with that. Then the second beatitude, happy are those who mourn. Well, it would make sense that uh, you know this is what Jesus is saying because now he's saying, I want you not just to know that you are destitute in spirit and you've got nothing to offer to God. I want you to mourn over that condition. I want you to mourn over your sinfulness. I want you to mourn over your impotence. I want you to really feel the weight of the fact that you have nothing to give to God. The third beatitude, blessed are the humble or the meek. Well, if we are on track with how we are understanding this and interpreting this, then now Jesus is saying, let your knowledge that you have nothing to give to God and the fact that you are mourning it, let it, let it cause you to be humbled in God's presence. To be humbled in God's presence. To realize that it's not about you, it's about Him. To, to be meek and to be humble. And then what's the fourth beatitude? Oh, now he says, eat and drink, have your fill. The fourth beatitude is blessed are those or happy are those who are hungry and thirsty for righteousness, right? The previous three set us up for this. Jesus now says, come to the table. Happy are you if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, for you will be filled. I mean, the... the the Christian life is not about destitution, but before the, the irony of the Christian life is before we go up in happiness and joy and fulfillment and everything else, we have to go down in humility and repentance and an acknowledgement of our guilt and sin. Before we enjoy the greatness of God, we have to be reminded that we are nothing in His presence. And therefore, we don't put our thumbs behind our proverbial you know, uh, straps, uh, uh, belt straps, and talk about how good we are. No, we are motivated to gratefully praise God for how good He is and how gracious He is. I hope you see this. hope this makes sense. Well, when we get to the next four Beatitudes, and we're, we're camping out on this, I just, um, this is so important. When we get to the next four Beatitudes, what we see is our relationship with people. Our previous four was our relationship with God. Now it's our relationship with people. The very first one in verse 7, happy are the merciful, right? Happy are those who are kind to other people. Happy are those who don't retaliate to those who hurt them. Happy are those who are merciful. And then the next one, happier, verse 8, happy are the pure in heart. Ah, so now Jesus is saying it's quite possible to be kind and merciful to others, but yet your heart is not in it. You're being nice to people, but inside you do not like them. <laughs> or you wish that you could do something. Or you wish you could tell other people about them. So Jesus said that blessed are and happy are the merciful will also have happy are you if you are kind and merciful and you're pure in heart. If your heart genuinely is feeling that toward others. 
See, it's not just enough to do the right thing. Our heart has to be right. The third beatitude, blessed are the peacemakers. Happy are the peacemakers. Right? Anybody can cause a quarrel. Anybody can create relational conflict. Jesus said, happy are those who have peace with others or at least are striving for peace with others. Romans tells us as much as is possible live at peace with others. It's not going to always be possible. But Jesus also said, happy are the peacemakers because they're the ones who are working for peace between others. He said, you want to be happy? Then help others live at peace. And then number 10, happy are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. What's Jesus saying here? He is saying that even if you are kind to others, and even if you are genuinely in your heart, pure in heart, kind to others, and even if you are peacemakers, ultimately sharing the gospel so that we can have peace with God, he said the world is not going to like it, and you are going to be persecuted even though you're doing the good things. But he said, happy are you. Why? Because it was done to Jesus, the one that we're following, but also it's not going to last because our rewards are great in heaven. Just realize that whatever difficulties you go through in this life, heaven, is it's going to be all better. So then, let's just quickly go through some of the rest of it. Verses 13 through 16, we see that Jesus calls us the salt and light. You know what that means? It means, Christian, that you are not to be passive. It means that you are not to be someone who sits back and lets life happen to you. Salt and light are influencers. You put salt on ham, it's going to influence that ham not to decay. If you put light on in a room, it's going to influence the darkness to run and hide. And so salt and light are influencers. Jesus is saying, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. What Jesus is saying is, I want you to live out your faith in such a way that you are influencing your family. You are influencing your church. You are influencing your community. Don't sit back and let life happen to you. You need to be an influencer. Live out your Christian walk in a way that you're influencing the world around you. Um, there's many other things that Jesus says here, but one of the, the phrases that I want to point out, you may have noticed it as you read in Matthew 5, is uh, a phrase, You have heard that it was said, but I say to you. And Jesus does this over and over. It begins in verse 21, You have heard that it was said, verse 22, but I tell you. Then verse 27, you've heard that it was said, but I tell you. Verse 31, it was also said, but I tell you. And he does that quite a few times until he gets to finally the end of the chapter with, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor, but I tell you, love your enemies. What Jesus is doing is clarifying their misunderstandings. Sometimes he is, he is saying, you have heard, and what he's referring to is something that is not in Scripture. He said, you've heard this, but it's nowhere in Scripture. But then there's been some other, there's other instances when what he said is, you have heard, but he's saying that, yes, that's in Scripture, but you have been taught the wrong thing. It doesn't mean that. And so what Jesus is doing is he's clarifying. Friend, I want to tell you, this isn't just Jesus' job. It's not just the pastor's job. It is your job, too, as a follower of Jesus, to know what's God, what God's Word has said and to graciously correct error. Graciously correct error. That when you see error, when you see something is wrong, Step in to speak truth into it. Be gracious in your, in your truth-telling. But this is what Jesus did, constantly correcting error and, and, and replacing it with truth. 
be that kind of person. A couple of other things I want to point out. Um, if you go to uh, Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 42, Jesus said, You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a truth, but I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. Two things. One, when we look at eye for eye and tooth for tooth, we may be tempted to say, oh, that, that was Old Testament, or that was, you know, that, that may, maybe you're not even familiar with Scripture and say that's not even in the Bible. Well, actually, yes, it is. It's found in Exodus 21. It's found in Leviticus 24. It's found in Deuteronomy 19. Um, but if you read Exodus 21, Leviticus 24, Deuteronomy 19, if you read those three passages, you will realize that when an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth was used, it was always used for the Israel court of law. It was always used for a, a legal proceeding, never, 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 never as an individual policy. And, in fact, we never see anyone having their eye taken out or a tooth knocked out. This was a phrase. It was, you know, it was a cliche that was used. And in fact, some would say, and I think Gandhi has even said, well, if we lived by an eye for an eye, a tooth for tooth, everybody would go around with one eye. I think it was Gandhi that said something like that. He misunderstood what Jesus was saying. <laughs> he, people look at this and they say that this is ghastly. You know, somebody knocks your eye out, take their eye out. That's not what that's not what the Bible is saying. When it says an eye for an eye, it God recognizes that humanity is brutal. Is brutal. And if someone hits us, we want to knock their head off, right? If someone does something bad to us, we want to hurt them worse to make sure they never do it again. An eye for an eye principle is saying stop it. That if, if someone does something bad to you, then in a civil court of law, the worst thing that can happen to them is the exact same thing. You cannot punish. The punishment cannot be greater than the crime. That's what an eye for an eye means. It wasn't ever intended to be a brutal law. It was intended to tone down the sinful humanity, our propensity toward vengeance and revenge and wanting to pay back greater than what was done to us. But also, when we listen to Jesus' words, Jesus, I don't believe, is talking about pacifism. That if bad things happen to you, just let it happen. I don't think that's what he's talking about. I believe what Jesus is referring to in the context of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth is Jesus in verses in Matthew 5, 38 through 42. He is simply saying there's no room for personal retaliation, Right? No room for personal retaliation. If someone does something bad to you, don't you retaliate. Now, there's a room for government. You know, we read about that in Romans 13 and other places. There's a room for the law to step in uh, when a crime has been done, when wrong has been done. We call out to the authorities to do that. But Jesus' word to us as individuals is you do not retaliate. And we see that in Matthew 5, 38 through 42. Um, one other thing is, is we see as we get to the end, this whole thing of, of love your enemies. I'm telling you that if ever there was a, an evidence that Christians treat the Bible as a buffet where they select some commands and then they leave other commands to not obey, love your enemies is one of those that Christians overwhelmingly leave on the hot plate and they don't 
comply with because it's hard, isn't it? I'm telling you, we cannot do this on our own, but Jesus has called us to do this. And in fact, he said that when you love your enemies, you will be demonstrating that you're children of your Father in heaven. He said this is one of the traits, this is one of the clear traits of someone who is genuinely saved, is they're able to love their enemies. Now, friend, I'm telling you, not love in our own strength. It's loving as we're depending upon Jesus to love through us. And then Jesus goes on to say at the end of the chapter, he says, you know what? If you love those who are good to you, what good is that? Even lost people, even reprobates do that. He said, if you genuinely want to demonstrate that you do belong to the Lord, then you've got to love those who abuse you. You've got to love those who abuse you, and we need Jesus to do this. This is a difficult command, as all commands in Scripture are. Do not think that you can do it if you just muster enough strength. Friend, I'm telling you that we need to rely upon the Holy Spirit and pray and ask Him to do in us, and then take the steps on ourselves by ourselves, but rely upon His strength to love through us. Lord Jesus, as we read your word, and specifically as we read Matthew 5, we realize that you want us to be happy. It doesn't mean that life is going to be easy. We know it's not. It certainly wasn't easy for you as you were here. But you want us to be happy. You want us to obey you and reap the benefits of an obedient life and not have the consequences of living in sin and disobedience. And so, Lord, I pray that as we read your word, we wouldn't just fill our mind with facts, but we would be listening to your Holy Spirit and our heart being open to the adjustments that you want to make in us so that we can live the kind of lives that you want us to live, so that we can be happy in you. Father, this is our desire. Help us to be happy in an obedient life to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've come to the end of another podcast, and I hope that you are enjoying these and that this is beneficial to you. Uh, if you've got some questions about some of the content today, maybe that I touched on or, or maybe something I didn't, or if you've got some clarifications you just want to share uh, with the group, and there's many that are looking at our Facebook group page, by all means, feel free under this podcast, feel free in the Facebook group um, to uh, write those things down and I'm looking forward to reading those and uh, also if you continue to think that there are some things that I could do to maybe uh, improve this I'd love for you to share those things too we'll see you tomorrow bye bye